Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast produced by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. We're in an unprecedented time with the COVID-19 pandemic spreading across the world. For the rest of this season, we are dedicating our podcast to presenting the facts about the virus and honoring the healthcare heroes and organizations that are making a difference in our community. The coronavirus outbreak has hit vulnerable populations incredibly hard. Dr. Susan Mani with LifeBridge Health is working with the Maryland Department of Health to track hotspots in the state and get needed resources to our most at-risk groups. Dr. Mani, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Megan, for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, with this socially distanced podcast, I said it'll be very authentic when you hear my neighbor's dog barking and the train whistle going off. But Absolutely. It's the way we live right now. Exactly. Um, so, Doctor, you are a member of the Maryland Coronavirus Task Force. Can you tell us a little bit about what the work of that task force is doing and your role on it? Sure. So it's a vulnerable populations task force. Our executive sponsor is Dr. Haft, who is a member of the department, Maryland Department of Health. And so one of the major roles of the task force is really to think about the needs of our vulnerable populations throughout the state of Maryland and to integrate and work with a lot of our health officers and local coalitions who are doing a fantastic and incredible job providing outreach and resources and making sure we're connecting with those who are most at risk for having severe disease from COVID-19 and trying to put measures in place to try to prevent that. So a lot of our work is understanding what the needs are throughout the state. A big part of what we have um, been able to accomplish and able to provide for the state is some data around the vulnerable populations so that folks can really try to target their resources and know how to do the outreach. And of course, we just have a wonderful group on the task force of many different what I call most the think tank, you know, a brain trust of folks across the state Mm -hmm. who really make it their life's work and passion to think about vulnerable populations in usual times. And since these are not usual times, we really rely on their expertise to think about some of the how. I am looking at some of the latest data. I always sort of look at coronavirus.maryland.gov. And I think people are really interested about where are we right now and as a state and as a city. So if you can look at some of the data and tell us a little bit about from your perspective, where are we as a state right now in the spread of this pandemic? Sure. And I think a a good way to put it into perspective is the CDC has data from a national way and that it's one of the ways that we take a look. So nationally, there's about over 600,000 cases that are known, over 30,000 deaths in the United States. And what we're finding is about eight out of the 10 deaths in the United States have been in those who are about 65 years or older. And um, that categorizes what we call severe disease, people who are more likely to need to go into the hospital or put into the ICU or unfortunately die from COVID-19. So if we bring it down to the state level, in Maryland so far as of today, we have greater than 11,000 cases. We have about 425 deaths that have been identified so far. And so when when we take a look at the different places in the state that have been affected, we see that uh, Baltimore City and Baltimore County 
are running sort of in the number three and number four slot when uh, it comes to the known number of cases. So that helps us give us a sense of where we stand, both in a from a Baltimore perspective, the state and as a nation. Mm-hmm. And I would say, how are we as Maryland, the state, when you look at some of the other states around us? I know that there's talk about um, somewhere in the Midwest opening, reopening, because they're on the plateau. When you look at our data, it doesn't feel like that's where we are even close. (laughs) And, you know, uh, the governor, I think, has made uh, some excellent statements about this and is very much relying on his experts around when is the best uh, place and time to reopen and very much relying also on what other, you know, as you can see for some of the other states, but they're really looking for is what is the number of cases, the number of deaths, you know, what is the rate that we're seeing from day to day. Clearly, a lot of the social distancing that was put in the state of Maryland has helped us when we compare ourselves to some of the, you know, other states that we see. But at the same time, as you hear from the governor very clearly, it's a day-to-day dance of really understanding when is it safe to sort of open up our lives in a way that we don't actually create a second peak or an additional peak. And I think that's why it's so important to look at these numbers on a day-to-day basis to understand what's going on. Are there any indicators that you would say that we see on a day-to-day basis that you would be looking for to say, okay, we're starting to get this under control? I think as the Department of Health and the other state experts who work with the governor are looking really the big things they're looking for is the number of cases, you know, the number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations as well. And with that, um, really looking at the change from day to day, because we know it can take a number of uh, days for people who are not symptomatic, for example, maybe to actually get a test and get the results. And understanding all of that is what they take into play in terms of making a decision about sort of opening things up again. And as we heard from the governor, it very much will not be an immediate kind of opening, but sort of a slow, thoughtful process, which is exactly what public health experts really are championing all around the nation. Mm-hmm. In the past um, few weeks, we've started to see data come out broken down by zip code. How is that helping you with your research on vulnerable populations? So this is exactly what um, our state task force has been working on. We've been working with a data group called Socially Determined. When our state task force came into be just a few weeks ago, that was the first group we reached out to. We know their work um, very well. I'm from LifeBridge, and we have had a long-standing connection with Socially Determined for some of the work that we've done on vulnerable populations. And their work is impressive in that when they're focusing on understanding some of the health outcomes, they take into account what are called social determinants. So social determinants are those conditions, the socioeconomic conditions into which we're born, we live, we work, and age, and they can have a tremendous impact on our health. So Megan, you mentioned zip code, which is fantastic. So the zip code in which we live, it turns out it's one of the strongest predictors of health outcomes, such as how long we live or how well we're going to do with certain diseases. And so what this group does is they take into account all of these socioeconomic factors, such as income levels in an area, poverty levels, access to education, access to food and transportation, many things that we may not normally consider with health, but they do have that tremendous impact. 
And what we've asked them to do is break it down by the various jurisdictions or counties in the state of Maryland to help us identify, given those factors, if someone has COVID-19, because we are all susceptible, but not all of us are going to have an equal likelihood of developing that severe disease, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. getting sick enough to end up in the hospital or the respirator or die. Is there a way to get a sense of who are folks at greatest risk by the different geographies that they live? Mm-hmm. And the reason, as you can imagine, that can be so important, and we share this data with our health officers and the local coalitions, is as they're doing the outreach and as they're making sure they get resources and education and making sure people have the resources and things that they need to stay safe in their homes is to really be able to target those resources very well based on the data. When you look at underlying conditions, you know, pre-COVID-19, when you look at underlying conditions based on location by zip code, are we seeing a correlation between people who have health problems already and then looking at the data with the same zip codes and same area and seeing higher cases of COVID-19 in those same areas and those same vulnerable populations? So what we are, it's it's a great question. And what we are doing right now is actually marrying the data of saying who is at risk knowing these underlying um, risk factors. So for example, we are taking into effect things that we know are greater risk factors for severe disease. So for example, being older, greater than 60, 65, people having certain underlying chronic diseases, as you mentioned. So we know folks who are what we call immunocompromised, their immune system may make their system weaker to be able to fight off infection. People who have underlying heart problems or lung problems, for example, are also known to have greater risk of severe disease. And then we also take into account certain things as being in a denser population because it's more likely to have people transmit disease if there's many people living close enough together into certain populations. And then, of course, the socioeconomic or social determinant needs. And by looking at that, we've already created the maps of where we think there are groups that are greater likelihood of if they develop disease, are they going to have more severe disease? And now we're also marrying it to the state data that we um, have been getting where we can see what are the outcomes. When people have tests and they come back positive, where are the groups that are having positive tests and the zip codes uh, that we're understanding of people who do end up in the hospital or who have negative outcomes? So it's a way actually of marrying these two to really be able to see over time by doing things from a preventative standpoint, can we actually have an impact on those outcomes? So are you looking at being able to kind of predict hotspots? And when you do predict those, what actions are being taken to try and circumvent a spread of the illness there? It's a great question, Megan. Our task force was just talking about this hotspot um, discussion. So perfect timing. So the hotspots are really where the actual large volumes of cases are, uh, regardless of if people end up in the hospital, but that we know. But we also know a lot of that has to do with, you know, some of the testing and the testing sites, et cetera. So what we are really trying to do is exactly what you said is if we know that there are um, groups by certain geographies or zip codes that we need to be concerned about, that we don't want them to become an actual hotspot, this is actually a way by providing the data down to the local coalitions and the health departments, for example, as we look at this, 
And we know that we have teams already who've been doing this for weeks, going out and thinking about where should we do testing? Let's make sure that we are taking high-risk people. And if they can't socially distance, for example, in a house because there's so many people in that area, then the health departments and the coalitions have been actually working on taking folks out and putting them, for example, into hotel spaces or different spaces for safety reason and to meet the CDC guidelines. So by providing this information, our goal is to be preventative and really not to get to a place that we get those kind of hot spots to begin with. The Pratt Library is always here for you. Librarians are available for live web chats through our Ask Us Now platform. Get help with research, homework, tech problems, and accurate information on the COVID-19 pandemic. Just log on to prattlibrary.org. We know that nationally, African-Americans have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and the same is true in the state of Maryland. Are there indications about why that is? So this is also a topic of great discussion, as you can imagine, for our task force, especially given the folks who are on the task force who have been really thinking about social and health disparity for their careers and for decades and uh, an ongoing conversation also nationally. So you're exactly right. You know, there has been um, concerns that have been brought out nationally through the CDC data and also state data about the impact of COVID-19 specifically on communities of color. And what we know historically has been that health disparities, and that's just the best way to describe that, is for different groups, if we take a look at certain diseases, are different groups having different health outcomes? And they usually relate to those social determinants that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Again, about our socio and economic factors, income levels, education levels, access to healthcare. You know, if folks live in an area where it's challenging to actually be able to get easy access, or perhaps there is not an understanding of the right times to access that healthcare, transportation is a big one that we often find. And then also just in day-to-day life, we think of social distancing as social isolation as necessary things right now. But for communities, you know, we rely on our groups to actually support us many times. And if that community infrastructure doesn't normally exist when you have underlying chronic diseases, it makes it very, very challenging. So communities of color um, historically have been known to have a disproportionate impact because of those socioeconomic or social determinants. And what folks feel is that now with this pandemic, what we see is an example of that. This particular disease bringing out those socioeconomic disparities and highlighting that in a health disparity. Do you feel like misinformation that's been out there has been a barrier? I know one of the things the city specifically was trying to combat was a rumor that people of color could not get COVID-19. Do you feel like there was a lot of misinformation out there that may have led to higher infection rates in certain areas? You have just wonderful questions. I have to tell you, I think you've been on our task force. (laughs) So this was, we have an education subgroup of our task force, and we have some incredible members from across um, the state who have been thinking about health equity and health literacy and really have been doing this for their professional lives. And this is exactly the conversation that had come up as we were trying to create some standardized just education materials 
And one of the things that was coming up is really how do we reach out to our vulnerable populations and our communities understanding that there can be differences in health literacy and understanding some of the messaging that's coming out and how that can be appropriate for different communities. And so based on that, our task force has been trying to reach out to um, these members, as you can imagine, have a lot of close contact with different uh, vulnerable communities and uh, coalitions and really trying to get local influencers. You know, sometimes the message can be different when it's stated by people who are seen as local pillars of their community or influencers. So with that, the message comes from someone that you trust in the community, it's going to have a much greater impact and resonate in a different way. And then we also had to think about sometimes putting the education in language for everyone because we don't want to make an assumption that sometimes the words that we're using are going to always resonate in the same way. So when it came to discussion with our education subgroup, we had this conversation even around uh, masks, for example. You know, we wanted to make sure there was some particular words that were used about being careful about a mask for our homeless population. So, you know, thinking about getting cloths and how to do masks, we had a concern about people using bags and not, you know, using that could be potentially unsafe. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about the messaging and really thinking about who you're speaking and crafting a message for? So you're really speaking to the group and what their needs are. And so that was very challenging. We, um, you know, we started off with standardized messaging But very quickly, the group said, well, how do we think about this group and the needs about this group? And it quickly moved from there. And they really started to reach out to the many, many different groups. And and I have to tell you, it's not just us by any means. I mean, we are one group of people amongst many. Uh, Every time I have reached out or talked to different groups or a task force comes back, it is incredible to hear how much activity and how thoughtful And uh, the kind of things that are being done now to really outreach and think about these things, we know about it, but the level of activity is more than anything I have ever seen before. So sometimes there's a silver lining in all of this. Sure. I mean, there's always going to be lessons learned, that's for sure. Another big vulnerable population that I would imagine you have a lot of experience with is people with underlying health conditions, specifically people that are in nursing homes, our older population I know uh, the state of Maryland has developed these strike teams to go into nursing homes. How does that work and how could that potentially help quell the spread in some of these nursing homes? Oh, sure. Great that you brought that up. This was something that had um, obviously come up in a different group um, and task forces obviously addressing that, but you know, yet another vulnerable population, as you can imagine, especially given the age as well as the underlying chronic health conditions that uh, many folks have as we age. So with that group, there has been a very uh, strong work between the health systems and our skilled nursing facilities and the state. And what we have been seeing is that strong partnership where, um, as you mentioned, the strike teams or the go teams, I believe is now what they're calling them, are really going in into the facilities and uh, working closely hand in hand with the facilities and making sure same thing Uh, How are folks doing that kind of social distancing? As you can imagine, sometimes a challenge um, in places that if you think about what the usual day-to-day, you want people to interact with each other, right? You want groups and you want that kind of contact. And so you have to think about things a little bit differently and physically. Same thing with education and testing. 
and also something called personal protective equipment to really make sure that, you know, how are we using that? And then the other thing is the connections, which our skilled nursing facilities and hospitals have always had, but just making sure that we are always in close contact with each other. So that, for example, if we have patients in our hospitals uh, that are ready to go back into the facilities, that the facilities are obviously ready to receive them safely, And then if there are patients in the skilled nursing facilities who could be managed in place, and that's a big part of a lot of the strategies of that GO team. You know, that GO team is really um, working with people and saying, you know, yes, someone has tested positive, but if they can be managed safely at the skilled nursing facility and watched over closely, then that certainly helps the capacity in the hospitals as well, because that was a big part of that flattening of the curve, because the concern was, of course, if we had so many cases happening so quickly, and then you had a lot of people who developed severe disease because of that, that transmission, that it could very easily overwhelm the health system. And so that's why all of these pieces come together to work of, in addition to flattening the curve, is what we think about raising the line and helping the capacity of the health system so that they can manage. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the capacity of hospitals. How are our hospitals doing right now? Is there enough PPE? Are they prepared? Are we looking at a peak coming up in a few weeks and are we prepared for it? So I am not the state expert, just to say on all of those uh, pieces, but I can tell you from what I have been learning, like everyone else, it really seems that there has been a tremendous job done by that and by health systems and the state and the Maryland Hospital Associations and the task force. I know we see, um, you know, you see the wonderful numbers that are coming through of just even though that there are cases that we see of not um, hearing about the overwhelming kind of numbers or cases or the inability to feel like you can care for the people who are coming in into the ED and the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things going forward now that has been recommended by the governor is wearing masks when you're inside grocery stores, when you're inside places that um, would be busy. If you can talk from a medical standpoint of what that mask will do for you and the people around you so that people have a little bit of a better idea of what those are actually there for. Sure. Uh, That's also an excellent question. So the the mask idea really comes from a, a good understanding of the novel coronavirus. So with the coronavirus, we know that there is transmission that occurs person to person, and it usually comes from several different forms. And that is something called respiratory droplets, which is essentially if someone coughs or sneezes, Mm -hmm. um, the concern is that those droplets actually contain the virus and the ability then that those droplets, if they fall around um, and in different locations, that we're, you know, we're, we're human beings, we touch things all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> and those, as we touch, um, and I'm sure, as I've heard from many people, we probably didn't realize how much we touch things or how much we touch our face after we touch things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, based upon that, it's the mask is really to really help others. It's so that even if we are sick, so say if one of us is sick from the coronavirus, we may not even realize that we have the infection because a number of people were finding are actually asymptomatic. In other words, they really have no symptoms to be able to tell. So as they go around and, you know, just a usual sneeze or a mild cough that we think nothing of might be actually transmitting the disease without recognizing it. So the mask serves as a physical barrier to kind of help prevent that. So it stays in a contained place and it really doesn't go out. And 
then if we're going into places where it's a little harder to do the social distancing. So Mm -hmm. if we're walking on an open street and we can kind of stay six feet away from each other, it's a little bit easier if there's a cough or a sneeze unintentionally. But, you know, if you're in a grocery store um, or other places where it's a little bit more challenging, I you know, went to the grocery store just a couple of weeks ago and they've been doing a phenomenal job of letting a few people in at a time. And yeah. everyone is really trying their best to help each other out. But no matter what, you know, you're not using a ruler and, <laughs> and yeah. trying to, yeah. <laughs> to do six feet. So that mask is yet another way of uh, creating another physical barrier. And then, of course, the other way of thinking about it is, you know, touching, you know, objects. And so some of the things that we have heard from the CDC is just about, you know, if if you bring things in from your mail or from the grocery store, it's really just thinking about wiping things down, certainly making sure washing hands is a critical part of this Mm -hmm. because we just... It's just unconscious, you know. We just use our hands all the time. Oh, we're yeah. touching things without realizing it, and you just don't know, even with the mask. So, equally important as the mask is washing of hands. So, that is probably the other strong public health message that has been going out all the time: is please be sure to wash your hands, use soap and water. I've heard a wonderful thing about the happy birthday song and using that a couple times to really get a sense that you're washing your hands well. If you can't use open water, which is uh, the optimal, is using hand sanitizers. And I think those are the kind of key messages that it's important for us to have. It's going to be a different kind of normal going mm-hmm. forward. Having a hard time with homeschool? The Pratt Library has you covered. Access free databases with your library card for all ages and subjects. Your child can also chat online live with a professional tutor. The Pratt Library is always here for you. Check it out at prattlibrary.org. We're talking a little bit about going forward and starting to loosen restrictions and reopen things wherever that hits in the timeline down the line. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of those measures that are going to have to be done to protect the vulnerable population until we have a vaccine, until we have something that will truly protect them? Yes. And I think one of the key things that we've been talking about at the task force and then again with all the the health coalitions and hearing from them is outreach, outreach, outreach really has been the major thing. So I can tell you a very finite thing that we are doing, uh, certainly at LifeBridge. So we have over 6,000 members in our community that we usually see on a monthly basis who are considered part of our vulnerable populations and in our program. Mm -hmm. So normally in our programs, we have partnerships, about 400 partnerships with different community partners and about 100 of our programs. And we are used to going out into the community, doing education sessions, for example, in the libraries or going to people's homes because it can be challenging sometimes, as I mentioned, some of the socioeconomic factors thinking about transportation. Sure. And with the pandemic, we had to completely rethink about what care delivery started to look like. And I think that is the impact that everyone is dealing with and um, trying to think through when you think about outreach, because this is exactly the population that needs more outreach during this time, not less. Mm-hmm. So as we think about our elderly population who might be living in what we call congregate facilities, you know, in group settings, for example, What we don't want to do is kind of go door to door sometimes in our usual programs because we were concerned about we don't want to become vectors for transmission by doing that. Mm -hmm. So part of our outreach has been really making those connections with people who have been able to 
for example, go for food delivery services, or perhaps they are the supervisors or they um, work in those resident facilities to say, we really need to connect with you. And we want to make sure that um, as you're keeping tabs on your residents, that we have a connection with you so that we can make sure we provide those resources. So if there are challenges with food services, if there's some education pieces we provide, and the other thing is linkage to clinical services. I think that was a key thing that we saw from some of the other states, such as New York. You know, we started to see data that people who have underlying chronic conditions like heart problems or lung problems, many of them were actually afraid to come into the emergency room or to the hospitals because they were afraid that they were actually going to contract disease. Mm -hmm. But by doing we were finding that people were getting sick in their homes and not being able to get health care. And there was a concern that there were higher rates of death from things like heart attacks that should not have happened. And we absolutely don't want that to happen for our populations, which is why part of the education is also that linkage to say, you know what, uh, all of the hospitals, everybody is doing what we call telemedicine visits or telehealth visits, right? Where everybody's trying to do visits in different ways, even if you don't have to come into the office like before. So that if we reach out to you, you know, we're also asking about your underlying usual disease. If you have what's called congestive heart failure, which is a particular heart problem, we've been reaching out every day and just saying, you know what? You may not have been needing to come to our heart failure clinic for three months, but we want to reach out to you anyway, just right. to see how you're doing. You know, how are you doing with your food? How are you doing? Uh, because you may not be able to go to the grocery store and get those healthy things that we told you that you should be eating a few months ago. Right. So if you're having more canned items that have salt, how do we think about that? Is that affecting your heart and your blood pressure so that we can perhaps manage you and talk you through that? Or we can actually do a visit with you just even through a video. Now, interestingly, Megan, what we're also finding as we do this is that not everybody has access to video oh, and yeah. telephones. Mm -hmm. And that has also been another way that we've had to kind of think creatively. On the task force, we have um, the Maryland Food Bank and um, others who obviously have a great deal of focus and impact on our vulnerable populations, especially now with the pandemic. And so, you know, they're doing door-to-door um, -door and uh, Meals on Wheels is another group. And so we're connecting with them and they are also part of many, many local coalitions and just trying to think about, okay, if these are services that can still go door-to-door, -door, how can you even put education and sort of connecting to find out, are there any symptoms and then how can we connect if we can't necessarily reach out to you? So it's creating this halo of efforts and really trying to get that outreach in many, beyond the traditional way, because this pandemic has really made us think outside of the box. And this is sort of in that same vein. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic in a very tragic way has shined a light on the inequities in the healthcare system for our vulnerable populations. When we are a year, two years, three years past this, do you think there is a new service model for the healthcare industry based off of what we've learned through this? Again, I do think you are listening in on our task force. <laughs> so um, you are absolutely correct. This is part of the conversation that all of us have been having. And again, when you talk to all of these wonderful coalitions and groups that, and the public-private partnerships that have been ongoing, much of the discussion, even before this pandemic, you know, around social determinants of health has been about how do you rethink healthcare delivery? 
Mm -hmm. Not just think about medical care, but also to think about social care, which is equally as important when you think about health outcomes and health impact. That actually is what population health really is. It's thinking about both aspects of it and thinking of it in a holistic way. Mm -hmm. So all throughout the nation of these have been conversations and how do we do this? How do we get that integration between health systems, community partners, health departments, social services, community members themselves and caregivers to think about this in such a holistic way. And I think what the pandemic has done is to really put that thought process and the logistics on steroids, so to speak, right? Because now here is a real life example of how you have to think about the medical care and the social care Mm -hmm. in a very different way and actually make it happen in a very quick manner. So all of the conversations that people have been having, whether it be at the task force level, whether it be at a health system level, whether it be at these public-private partnerships, local coalitions, that is exactly the kind of work that is being done. And because you have to work through these logistics, what I think we are seeing is that it's allowing us to create, I was thinking of them as like the railroad tracks, Mm -hmm. to allow us to have this journey and be able to move on it even faster than we were six weeks ago and certainly even six months ago. And my last question for you, Dr. Mani, is, is there a message that you want to get out there to Marylanders about how we're going to get through this together? I think the the message really is we will get through this and we will get through this by doing it together. What we have certainly learned is the beauty of so many different groups coming together and the incredible skill sets that different people bring, the different insights that are brought together. And really, Megan, it has been magical from that standpoint Mm -hmm. to see how different people coming together have really made a positive impact. And it is one person at a time, but it is by doing that one person at a time that you will see an effect not just at a city or county, but truly at that population level. So while the pandemic has certainly been harrowing and continues to be, and uh, aspects of it certainly frightening for every single person, the magic that has come of out of all these groups doing it and doing it together has really been a thing of beauty to watch. Dr. Susan Mani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Megan, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. The Pratt E-Library never closes. Log on to prattlibrary.org and get an e-card. You'll have access to thousands of e-books, audiobooks, streaming TV, movies, and more. You can even attend virtual programs on the Pratt social media channels. More information at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.